Amen. You may be seated. Well, folks, you are in for a treat this morning as we gather to hear God's word proclaimed. Uh, the Reverend Canon Art Going is going to be our preacher today. Art and Nancy Going have been instrumental in our lives in the fact that uh, they served as the clergy family that was serving and caring for my uh, my son-in-law and my daughter, my oldest daughter in Louisville for several years. And so we were so thankful for their presence in their lives and they remain close to our children and grandchildren, and they are close to us. We are thrilled to have them here. Uh, Art Going is the is an archdeacon. He's a canon. We have all these special titles. It's kind of like it's almost like superpowers. You know, you get them in uh, in Anglicanism. Um, the uh, archdeacon used to be, at least in the Church of England, if you were if you were in trouble and the bishop needed to send the enforcer, he sent the archdeacon. Um, so I don't know if that's why Art is here this morning. We may, we may I may find out something after this service that I need to know. Uh, but no, seriously, we're delighted to have him and Nancy with us. They are dear friends, and they have been a blessing to us. Art and Nancy spent many years serving in the Lutheran Church, so I do want you to know that this is the unofficial Lutheran Hour at Christ Church. Welcome, Lutherans. And uh, so uh, you are, we're one big family, and we praise God for them being with us this morning. So I would ask uh, Canon Art going if you would come forward this time and bring God's Word to us. Well, I've said it once all morning, and I continue to feel it. My heart is full uh, being here. But uh, for any of you who have ever enjoyed uh, the friendship and the hospitality of, of Lisa and Ben, uh, you know that uh, you come away not only with a full heart, but a full belly. <laughs> uh, between Lisa's kitchen and uh, sweet potatoes downtown, we have, uh, we have feasted on rich fare. Uh, it's just been a precious gift to, uh, to break away for a day and a half uh, from the routine and the busyness. Uh, we, just, we just moved uh, to a new house, and so to get away from boxes and things that don't work the way we hoped they'd work, um, and to just come and hang out for a couple of days, and to worship with you. Uh, this, this is a precious church. I know you know that. Uh, but it, it's good sometimes when somebody from the outside comes and reminds you what, what a gift you have in each other. You have been given to each other by God to receive each other's gifts and to serve together in the name of Jesus. And uh, there are great days ahead for Christ Church and its people. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, open our eyes to see your glory. Open our ears to hear your word. Open our hearts to receive your grace. And then, Lord, open our lips to sing your praise and our hands to serve your people. All for your name's sake. Amen. Yeah, I don't know about these titles. Uh, they keep changing. I've gone from archdeacon to canon theologian to canon for leadership development. Um, my kids just call me dad, and that's fine. I tried to get them to call me Pastor Art when I was a Lutheran pastor all those years. It just never quite took. Um, I'm glad to be with you. I've been listening this week not only deeply to God's word, but um, I always try to listen to voices of the culture 
as well. I, I know you do the same, uh, wittingly or unwittingly. Uh, you, you hear music, it's incessant. The noise around us seeps into you. Uh, you know that because you walk away sometimes uh, uh, humming a tune. You don't even know where you heard it. It just is all of a sudden in you. It's on your lips, in your mind, uh, messages that you sometimes wish you could scrub off your mind. Um, The culture invades our minds and hearts that way. Well, I also think it's good to listen intentionally to voices from the culture. And so uh, this week I was listening just ever so briefly to to a couple of world-class artists. Uh, One is William Shakespeare. Uh, If you're familiar with Macbeth, uh, you may remember Macduff's famous line, each new morn, new widows howl, new orphans cry, new sorrows strike heaven on the face. Well, that's kind of bleak. Um, Maybe you're not a Shakespeare fan, so maybe Mel Brooks will be your voice. Mel Brooks, who said simply, life stinks. Now, that may be an unusual way to begin a sermon, a a gospel proclamation, but we need to be real, don't we? Um, You know it. You don't need me to remind you of it. You you scarcely need Mel Brooks to repeat it for you. You certainly don't need Shakespeare reminding you that each new morn, new widows howl, new orphans cry, new sorrows strike heaven on the face. If I were to ask you right now to turn to someone, uh, someone close to you or someone you don't even know, and just take a minute to start listing all the ways that your life stinks, you wouldn't have a hard time, would you? Now, I'm not a negative guy. I'm mostly glass half full. I'm usually pretty hopeful. I I don't lose sleep. My wife can tell you this. I I, I don't lose sleep even in the midst of crisis. Um, I, I tend to be pretty happy on balance. But life does stink sometimes as it did for the people of God who are addressed in today's reading from Hebrews. Hebrews is a book from a pastor to a people, a people who are new to faith, they're new Christians, and they need to recall how good God is, how powerful the cross is to transform our lives, their lives, and how hopeful God calls them to be in an uncertain future. If you were to go back, just dial back a few verses before today's appointed reading from Hebrews 11. At the end of chapter 10, we read, Recall the former days. Now, those former days for these early Christians weren't that long ago. They've just come to faith. They've just come into the body of Christ. Recall the former days when after you were enlightened, that is, after you were baptized and received the light of Christ. Recall the former days when you endured hard struggle with sufferings sometimes being exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you, catch this line, this is stunning, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Now in the South, if somebody tries to plunder your property, you take a shotgun out. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Who does that? And how do they do it? Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession 
and an abiding one. Therefore, here comes the punchline, do not throw away your confidence. You have need of endurance. We are not those who shrink back and are destroyed. That, in a nutshell, is the message that runs right through the entire letter to the Hebrews. Don't throw away your confidence. You need endurance. You are not those who shrink back and are destroyed. You see, they had been bold not long ago, their pastor is saying. Now they appear timid. They'd stood their ground fast. But now they seem to be in a retreat. They'd considered their property, even their property, expendable for this cause of Christ. But now they appear afraid to take any risks whatsoever. Now, if you were to zoom out from that little snippet from Hebrews 10, zoom out a bit and look at uh, all of chapters 10 through 12, you get the wider picture of the lives of these early Christians. There are people of God who had grown tired, the letter says. They'd begun to coast. Have you ever been there in your spiritual life? Just coasting along, taking faith for granted, taking the gospel for granted, taking Jesus for granted? Coasting spiritually is a dangerous posture. And the pastor to these early Christians knows that. And so time and time again, the the letter to the Hebrews is filled with passages of warning and remembrance. They had become careless in spiritual vigilance. They, They weren't watching out for the movements of the evil one in their own lives and in the world around them. They stopped paying attention. They were in danger of quenching the Holy Spirit with passionless dead, predictable, dutiful religious exercise. Now, hear me right. There is nothing wrong with religious exercises when they're filled with faith and joy in the Lord. But when they become passionless and dead and merely dutiful, they come under the indictment of God's prophets, as we heard this morning in the reading from Isaiah. Throughout the Hebrews, the letter to the Hebrews, are these warning passages not to grow weary, not to coast, not to become careless, not to quench the Holy Spirit. And now, zooming back in on chapter 11 and the beginning of chapter 12, we get a picture of a people of God who, well, this is a really pretty wonderful analogy that we get in Hebrews 11 and 12, particularly this week, the week where we're uh, beginning to turn attention, at least some of us, to the Olympics in uh, Rio de Janeiro. We get a picture of these people like folks who are running a marathon. Uh, The last laps have been sounded. It's time to see our life as a race to be run with passion and zeal and energy and self-discipline. But instead, these early Christians are beginning to question even being Christian. That's what's at stake. Not only was their property considered expendable at one point. Now, they've begun to think that maybe even their faith is expendable. So here's the the basic question that chapter 11 in the the letter to the Hebrews poses. It's, It's a really important question. It's a question I'm sure you must have asked about yourself and your own life at some point. How can I live my life in the face of an unknown future? It's a great spiritual question. 
How can I live my life in the face of an unknown future? First of all, we need to acknowledge that the future is unknown. Anybody here know what's going to happen tomorrow? I mean, you'd like to think you know. You've probably got plans. I know where I'm headed tomorrow morning. But I don't know the future any more than you do. I don't know if my health will turn south next week. The bishop didn't know that he'd get laid low when he went on vacation in Pensacola or uh, Perdido Bay this week. He didn't know that he'd end up on, flat on his back with prostatitis in agony. You don't know the future of this church. Not in human terms. How can I live my life in the face of an uncertain future? The message of chapter 11 in Hebrews is this. In the face of an unknown future, faith flourishes. Faith specializes in living in the face of an unknown future. Chapter 11, verse 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And then for the rest of the chapter, we get a litany of references to people who lived, and the text tells us, by faith, by faith, by faith. It drums it into our ears so that we can't miss the point. So what's faith? Well, I'll tell you what it's not. Faith is not merely a feeling. It's not even a feeling of being sure. It's a belief in something real and tangible, something objective. Faith is not a leap in the dark. Back when I was a seminary student, it was fashionable, even in church circles, to, to encourage people to take a leap of faith. That's not faith. That's just stupid. Tell you what else faith is not. Faith is not a plant that is native to the human heart. I read that this week. I love that line. Faith is not a plant that is native to the human heart. Charles Spurgeon, the great London preacher of a previous century, once said, if I find faith in my heart, I know someone must have planted it there. You see, faith is not something we conjure up or will into being. Faith is not our work. Faith is rather the gift of trust in Christ that God gives to those he's accepted because of the work of Jesus on their behalf. Faith is a gift. Now, we, we like, because it's just how we, how we roll, it's how we measure things, we like sometimes to lament the fact that, well, I've got such a, a weak faith. I, I wish I had more faith. Did you ever notice Jesus celebrating even little faith? said, faith as small as a mustard seed can move mountains, can grow into a mighty tree. Chapter 11, verse 1 is, is not, you see, so much, as a, so much a formal definition as it is a recommendation and celebration of the kind of faith that lives powerfully and heroically 
in the face of an uncertain future. It's about the intensity and capacity of real biblical faith. Faith celebrates now. This is how I want to translate 11 verse 1. Remember, here's, here's the verse again. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Well, say it a little differently. Faith celebrates now the objective reality of the future blessings for which we hope. I love how faith and hope are are tied together, almost as though they were inseparable. Faith provides the objective ground upon which we Christians can base our subjective confidence. By faith, Christians know that realities seen now, not seen now, will be seen in the future. Faith is looking at God and trusting him for everything. Hope is looking at the future and trusting God for it. Now, the pastor who writes to the Hebrews has a slightly different perspective than the Apostle Paul, uh, to whom we most often turn for our definitions of faith. Paul, for Paul, faith is the subjective response toward God, toward what God has done in the past, and that's good. But here in Hebrews, faith is really focused on the future albeit a future which is uncertain and unknown, but nonetheless future-focused. It's openness to the future, which leads to obedient trust, trust in God who has spoken to us through a future-oriented word we call promise. Faith is a present grasp on invisible truth expressed in God's promises. There's a wonderful verse here in uh, verse 16 which ought to stir up your faith. It's kind of a surprising sentence. God is not ashamed to, to be called their God for he has prepared for them a city. I found that kind of jarring. I, I, didn't, I wouldn't have expected that sentence. I've never even thought, I have to admit, I've never even thought that God might be ashamed to be called my God. But I rather like being reminded of it. That God never, ever is tempted to bail on me or you. To deny he knows me the way Peter denied he knew Jesus. God is committed inalterably committed to those who respond to him through committed faith, the faith that he's given us in the first place as a gift. Now, the writer to the Hebrews knows that, uh, that we are fueled in our faith by hearing the stories of faithful people and, and, and seeing their faces before us. And so Hebrews 11 uh, does, has this wonderful device of, of painting a vivid picture of the family of faith. Um, several years ago, Nancy and I were on an anniversary trip and we, we were in London uh, feasting ourselves on, uh, on old buildings and museums and just all kinds of artifacts of culture, and one afternoon we, we spent a wonderful time in the National Portrait Gallery, which is um, on Trafalgar Square, uh, just across the, the square from uh, the famous Anglican Church St. Martin in the Fields. And if you go into the museum, the, the National Portrait Gallery, it's just room after room after room of portraits. All the famous people, I mean every imaginable person famous or influential in the whole history of, of England. Well, Hebrews 11 is is just that. 
It's Faith's Family Portrait Gallery. And we're being invited, as it were, to, to stroll lovingly and longingly through this gallery, stopping in front of each portrait and just saying, who is this? What's their story? What do we learn from this? What do we take away from this? How, how was God involved? And, and Hebrews 11 does it, to be sure, in, in sort of shorthanded fashion, just alluding to these stories, just you know, a, a few brushstrokes, uh, but, but that, that awakens in the memory of these new Christians who, who surely had met, some of them, had just heard these stories afresh for the first time, maybe. Uh, some of us need to you know, dust off our Old Testaments and, and go back and, and immerse ourselves in these stories because we don't know the shorthand as well. But we find out that, well, by faith, God's people did some amazing things. Michael Card, another artist I love, wrote a song about it. He said, by faith, one was commended for the sacrifice he made. Another, out of holy fear, built an ark the world to save. By faith, Noah built a boat in the desert. Who does that? Another left his homeland, and as a stranger, he'd reside. That's Abraham. But none received the promise, and so in faith, in faith, they died. If you read to the very end of chapter 11, uh, it, it's, it's actually kind of alarming what you read, what you hear. The, the stories of God's people... The writer says, what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Whoa, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. In case you haven't been in the gallery lately, these are not just ancient tales. It's only a few years ago that the precious daughters of faithful brothers and sisters were snatched up and taken away in Nigeria. It was just last week that some were martyred refugees from Syria. One of our Anglican congregations in Baghdad has been decimated. Where each week's newsletter for years listed the dozens who this week were put to death. But by faith, they would not bow the knee nor kiss the emperor's ring. by faith. There's no other way that you can move into an uncertain future except by faith. Well, you can try to endure without it. 
but it will crush you. Today's reading zooms in on one member of the family, Abraham. And so it invites us to stand in front of this one portrait in the gallery. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go to the place that he was to receive as an inheritance. That's, that's the little bit we get told about Abraham. He went out. Why? Because God said go. He said go to a place that I will give you. And Hebrews 11 says, Abraham went out, don't you love this, not knowing where he was going. And it wasn't just because he was clueless or didn't have GPS. He went out by faith. There is so much to learn from Abraham's journey of faith. First, the journey of faith involves deep trust in the one who sends us out. That, that's what faith is. Faith is not, in the first place, head stuff. Faith is trust in a faithful God who sometimes says go. And so the journey of faith often means dislocation. Now, it has meant physical dislocation for some of you. For many of us, it's a different kind of dislocation. Journey of faith often means being sent out, following Abraham, being uprooted, uprooted as generations following Abraham were, uprooted from their country, Strangers and exiles on the earth. Uh, we've grown far too accustomed, I think, to talking about other people as strangers and exiles. And our world is flooded, quite literally, with refugees for whom we must have great compassion and arms of compassionate welcome. But we dare not forget that it's not just they, but we who are the strangers and exiles. This is not our home, the writer to the Hebrews is saying. It's an important encouragement to us. In the face of an uncertain future, we need to be reminded our future is not this. Our future is the new creation, which has already begun in Christ. It's the city of God coming down upon the earth, the new Jerusalem. And the journey is possible only by being dependent on God. Deep trust dislocation, dependence on God. Sarah and Abraham learned that intimately. I mean, don't you love, again, with this divine shorthand, the way Sarah and Abraham are described here in, in, in the portrait gallery. Sarah is, is labeled simply as past the age. And we all know what that means. And Abraham, as good as dead, doesn't sound terribly hopeful. And that's the point. They had to have wondered. We know they wondered. The Bible says they wondered. They, they wondered and they laughed at the promise and wondered, where is the power going to come from? But here's the thing. On the journey of faith, the destination is never in doubt. 
Faith is future-focused, forward-looking. They gave no thought to what they had left behind. Why? Because, it says about Abraham, he desired a better country. I wonder how often you think about that when you live in a quandary, when you're wondering about what your future holds. Do you dream about a better country? A city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. While you're so anxiously trying to craft your future, how about redirecting your focus to the one the Bible says is the architect of that future? Now, they never got there. And we could say, oh, how sad to start but not finish the journey. But they weren't sad. They knew we have a God who keeps promises. And that's your God. We have a God who sent another pilgrim, his own son, whose journey of faith also led him out, not knowing where he was to go. And when on the verge of going into the valley of suffering, he even prayed, take this cup from me. But the pastor of the letter says, he became like us in every respect and then entered into the city of God. And then this, almost as an afterthought, the pastor says, and he's not ashamed to call you brothers and sisters. And quoting a psalm, the pastor of the letter says, I will put my trust in him. Three principles for living with greatness and certainty for living by faith. One negative, one positive, one ultimate. Here's the first principle. It's the negative one, if you will. We read that Abraham went out not knowing where he was going. We could just as easily say not caring where he was going or not even needing to know where he was going. Or you could say it this way. Here's the principle. You cannot trust circumstances. Do you know how important that is spiritually? Get your heart off circumstances. Stop focusing your energy on trying to reshape and change your circumstances. It's not what happens to you that matters, ultimately, that makes or breaks you. It's what you bring to what happens. You try, to, you try to base your life on your circumstances, and your life will be, I guarantee you, it will be ruined. At the very least, you'll be anxious all the time, losing sleep, wondering, oh, what's going to happen to me? Or you'll shut down and be afraid to commit to anything or to anyone. Or you'll spend 
boundless energy, striving to change the future or to even see and determine the future. It's the going out not knowing that matters. Your response to God in the midst of circumstances that matters. You cannot trust circumstances. But you can trust God. Remember that sentence I mentioned early in the sermon about when when their property was plundered, they suffered that joyfully? Did anyone say, yeah, right? Who does that? Well, that's a pretty constant refrain in the New Testament. Paul says disturbingly often, give thanks in all circumstances. Rejoice and give thanks in all things. Doesn't say, the gospel doesn't say, Wait until your circumstances have changed. Wait until life is better. Wait until your health is restored. Wait until your marriage is whole again. Wait until your job, the job of your dreams, has finally fallen into your lap. Wait until life is good and then rejoice. Then give thanks. It says rejoice in all things. Not because all things are wonderful. Mel Brooks is still right. Life sometimes stinks. Rejoice anyway. You know where Paul talks most eloquently about joy? It's in 2 Corinthians 12 and passages parallel to that where he goes through a long autobiographical litany of pain and crud and suffering and abuse and near death And then reminds us that God's strength is made perfect in our weakness. And you can just feel the joy exuding from him. Instead of trying to rearrange your circumstances, focus rather on having the heart that Abraham and Jesus had. Ultimately, Hebrews 12 tells us Jesus, remember, is the pioneer and perfecter of your faith. He's the pioneer of your faith, meaning not just that he's the creator and the giver of your faith, but he's exemplified what a faithful life looks like, and he will perfect your faith. Second principle, the positive one. Abraham yearned for a better country, a city with foundations. That's that's talking about a discipline, deliberately practiced, a mindset, a lifestyle. The pastor here is saying only your heavenly citizenship will empower your earthly citizenship. What's crucial is knowing where you're ultimately headed and then growing in the knowledge of Jesus who went there for us, who went out for us. And the third principle, the ultimate one, the one that really matters, the one that will sustain you in the face of an uncertain future. Abraham went out not knowing where he was going. That's true. 
but he knew with whom he went out. By faith, he knew with whom he went. Just as by faith, you and I know. And we can learn not to trust circumstances, but rather to yearn for a better country and to focus on the one who will lead us there. I've always loved this prayer. It was in the worship book that I worshiped and led worship with for 30 years in the Lutheran Church. But it's a good prayer for all believers. O God, you have called your servants to ventures of which we cannot see the ending, by paths as yet untrodden, through perils unknown. Give us faith to go out with good courage, not knowing where we go, but only that your hand is leading us and your love supporting us through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.